Lend Us Your Ears, a podcast by Bard in the Botanics. Episode 1, with Hey Ho, the Wind and the Rain, Why Bard in the Botanics. Hello, uh, I'm Gordon Barr, I'm the Artistic Director of Bard in the Botanics. And I'm Jennifer Dick and I am the Associate Director. And over the coming weeks and months and maybe even years, uh, we will be your hosts uh, for this podcast. Uh, we've begun this podcast because we can't do what we normally do. Uh, we can't produce live theatre this summer. We're uh, kicking off in the summer of 2020 when the coronavirus pandemic is sweeping the world. And uh, it has put paid to our summer season for the first time in 19 years. So rather than disappear completely, uh, we wanted to uh, reach out to our audience. And uh, while we can't put stuff on our stages, uh, we thought we'd give you a a little glimpse uh, backstage and uh, kick off a podcast talking about what it is that we do at Bar the Botanics, how we put it all together, uh, what it's like doing outdoor theatre in the west coast of Scotland and give you a chance to to meet all the artists uh, that work with us and uh, help create the summer season. So this episode we've entitled Why Bar the Botanics? Um, and we've gathered up some contributions from some of the key artists who work with us at the company. Um, Because we thought that was kind of a good place to start, is to try and answer the question why we do what it is that we do. Um, So we're going to try starting out by Gordon and I answering that question. So I'm going to throw it over to him. Gordon Barr, why Bard in the Botanics? Kind of to procrastinate on actually answering that question, uh, I'm going to twist it slightly round to start with... kick off my answer with what is Bard in the Botanics, because not everyone listening uh, is going to know the company. So we are principally an outdoor theatre company. Uh, We stage a summer season of uh, classical plays, principally Shakespeare, uh, in Glasgow's Botanic Gardens. Um, And as I said, we have been doing so for the past 19 years. Uh, We do work throughout the year as well. The uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in uh in the future of the podcast. Uh, but uh, principally, we uh we worked our summer season, uh, six weeks of performances, four productions currently, uh, each summer, to large scale outdoor productions and to smaller studio uh scale productions uh inside the beautiful Victorian glass house in Glasgow Botanic Gardens, uh, the Kibble Palace. Uh, which is a stunning setting for shows. Uh, so that is what we are. Uh, so now I have to actually answer the question, why? Why Bard and the Botanics for me? It starts with the fact that they were the first people to give me a job. Uh, <laughs> Let's be honest about this. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I graduated from Glasgow University, uh, having studied English and Theatre Studies, um, <laughs> several years ago just a few. Uh, just uh just in time for uh Bard and the botanics to be developing under its original artistic director scott palmer and uh i managed to inveigle myself into any meeting with scott uh and uh managed to convince him to give me a slot at the first year's festival uh as an emerging director uh i so kind of i I got involved with Bard in the Botanics because it was an opportunity uh, for me to 
uh, direct not long after I'd, I'd graduated from university. And I very quickly uh, fell in love with doing Shakespeare, doing outdoor Shakespeare, and fell in love with the company, uh, the company ethos. And I think we're going to hear a lot more about how that company ethos works for people now as we listen to uh, the contributions from our associate artists. But that was definitely a big part of it for me um, was I was the the friendly atmosphere, the the feeling of finding a little theatrical family very quickly, even in its very first year. And you were there as well. I was. Uh, acting in that very first year. Um, uh, for Although you are the associate director of Bard in the Botanics, you're also... Uh, have been one of our core actors across the years um and depending on what year it is depending depends on what you focus on yeah jack of all trades master <laughs> of none i think is what some people might say <laughs> not me definitely Aww. not me I, he has to say that. <laughs> yeah so i fell in love with with the work that was being done um not with my own work initially i i went on a very steep learning curve in that first year uh, having never directed outdoors before. I had directed Shakespeare at university, but I'd never directed outdoors. And um, I don't know that I managed it that well in my very <laughs> first year. Uh, I had a really lovely cast for Romeo and Juliet, uh, which was my first ever show for Bard, but um, I'm not sure that I really understood what I was doing. So yeah, I had to learn very, very quickly uh, and on the job. Uh which is a scary way to do it, but kind of the most, oh, I don't know, the most immediate way to do it. Um, there are people coming to see your show. You better learn how to how to direct an outdoor show before they turn up. Uh, and then within two years, uh, Scott had uh, left the country to... <laughs> like he was fleeing. He was, wasn't on the run. People. No, he wasn't doing he a moonlight flit. Um he had moved on, um, was heading back to America, where he was from originally. And uh, he very kindly asked me to take over the company. So at the age of 24, I took over Barden the Botanics as artistic director and went on another incredibly steep learning curve as I learned how to run a Shakespeare festival. See, what you've done there is you've given it away because people can do the maths now. People can go 24 plus 17. No, I stopped. No, I stopped at twenty nine. I must have been like fourteen, <laughs> uh, when I started. Uh, they started working with the company. No, they. Uh, yes, they. Uh, I have spent most of my adult life <laughs> at Bard in the Botanics, um, and I still love it. Um, I could fill the entire podcast with why, um, but I'm going to, uh, flip it back over to you. The short answer is because I absolutely love it, um. The reasons that I love it are are many. Um, like Gordon, it was also my first job out of drama school. I trained as an actor um, in Glasgow and it was my first professional job and I just loved it. I, I'm one of these people who I actually never studied Shakespeare at school. Um, so I never went through the thing which I think some people used to have uh, where uh, the learning of Shakespeare was kind of a dry, dull, very academic experience. I, I never had that experience. I have to say, I believe... I definitely did. Oh, I so. definitely did. <laughs> and it's no disrespect to my teachers. It's just 
it's not meant to be read and it's certainly not meant to be read by a group of 14 year olds in an English class <laughs> in Northern Ireland it's... who don't want to read it out loud. <laughs> Exactly that. So I was never, I, I never had that experience. Um, and I just, I was a bit gallus, good Scottish word, uh, which basically means I was quite arrogant and just thought I can do Shakespeare. Why, why shouldn't I? Um, which is kind of the attitude I want people coming into Shakespeare to have. Why isn't this for me? Because I absolutely believe Shakespeare's for everybody. Um, so yeah, it was my first job. I played Caliban in The Tempest in the very first season and Phoebe in As You Like It. And I just had an absolute blast. Um, and one of the things I discovered that year was the sheer joy of outdoor theatre. I think it's a very democratic form of performance because you can see the audience and they can see you and everyone joins in together to play the game. It's also what why I think Shakespeare works so well outdoors. It was designed to be performed um in an outdoor setting, you know, the the rose, the globe, these these are all open air theatres. They don't have roofs. Um and they're designed for the audience to be directly addressed and involved in the shows. Um, and it's just such a wonderful feeling, especially on a nice day. Everybody's in a good mood. Everybody's excited. Um, everybody brings a picnic uh, and it feels, yeah, it, it's a very democratic form of theatre, which I really enjoy. Um, and I think one of the reasons why Bard in the Botanics specifically for me is is what I hope that we do at Bard and the Botanics is we break down those perceived barriers that people have between them and Shakespeare. I think a lot of people having had the experience that Gordon is describing of, of learning Shakespeare at school and maybe not getting on with it, finding it boring, finding it inaccessible, could come to a Bard and the Botanics show and be entertained and be inspired and maybe start to think, oh, actually, maybe this Shakespeare stuff is for me. Maybe this has resonances with my life. Maybe this is just going to be a really good laugh. Um, and maybe they'll do a song and dance at the end and everyone will go home smiling. Um, which yes, again... it's particularly appropriate when you do that at the end of Hamlet when everyone's dead. <laughs> Have a song and a dance. I still, I'm, one of these days, I'm going to do a jig at the end of a tragedy. It's one of my crazy notions that I think we could make it work. I'm going to figure out a way. So this Watch is something space. This is something that we've introduced at Bard, uh, I think kind of over the last seven or eight years, I think. Um, I mean, we haven't introduced the idea of a jig at the end of the show. That was something that was done at uh, the Globe Theatre when Shakespeare was writing for it. Um, but uh, we've kind of introduced our own versions uh, of a jig that will be a communal dance to whatever piece of music is appropriate for the the show that we're doing but we tend we have tended to confine it to comedies and that uplift at the end of a comedy um and i'm intrigued to see if yeah. you ever manage to make it work for a tragedy very difficult to do a jig at the end of romeo and juliet so the there was something in what you were saying that i wanted to pick up on which is this idea of our work we want to bring people into Shakespeare and make people love Shakespeare. So kind of, while the question for the ty for the episode is why Bard and the Botanics, part of that is, is why Shakespeare? Why, why do we think that that's important? Why do we have an entire theatre company dedicated to this one writer? Uh, I mean, I know I have my thoughts on that. Do you have your own thoughts, Jennifer? I find Shakespeare 
endlessly inspiring and interesting. And I really do mean endlessly. I can go back to texts that I know really, really well. And, you know, a few of the plays now I've been directing um, for more than 12 years, I think, and I've been acting for hmm, a uh, number of years. That um, was 19 years, <laughs> in case you didn't quite pick it up. 19 years. Thanks. Thanks for that, Gordon. What I am trying to get at is that there are certain texts that I've worked on more than once, sometimes three or four times. And I find with Shakespeare that every time I return to the text, it it's deeper and richer and there is more nuance and complexity to be drawn out I think I I really do believe that he is the great humanist that I think I know he's been oh, described st- that way you stole <laughs> what I was gonna say um that I think that but I think I really do think that's true because I think the plays reflect the human condition really beautifully and resonate with with all of us with all of our experience and that's why the plays have lasted and that's why I personally keep wanting to return and tell the stories because they feel like they're about right now and and I think that's that's kind of unparalleled in drama I completely agree it is the humanity in the plays that means although they were written 400 more than 400 years ago that's what keeps them as you say relevant that's what keeps them important that's what keeps them touching us as human beings that's why they're reaching us 400 more than 400 years later um and that's what you've got to try and get out of the plays as a director the uh, and as a an actor a designer anyone who's working in these shows wants to pull out the humanity uh and you're right i don't think anybody has before Shakespeare or after Shakespeare, encapsulated the human condition. You think about any pair of doomed lovers are compared to Romeo and Juliet. Any pair of uh, sparring lovers that seem not to like each other, but you know are ending going to end up together. They're, they are a Benedict and Beatrice from much ado. You know, these, these characters, these situations that he creates you know, they are timeless. Um, and so that's why the plays, for me, uh, that's why Shakespeare, that's why we do these plays. Uh, and we'll talk more about how we achieve that. How do we choose to try and get the humanity out of them? How do we choose to try and highlight their relevance, their universality as we talk more about Bard? But that's that's a really important aspect to me. So over the course of this episode, we're going to hear some contributions from Barden and Botanics associate artists. Our associate artists are, are a group of artists um, from all of the disciplines that work with Barden and Botanics, actors, designers, stage managers. And they are people who have worked with us uh, a lot over the recent years. Um, and they are people who we would consider to have made a significant artistic contribution to the development of the company. They are the core of the Bard and the Botanics family. So we wanted to ask them the same question that we've been asking ourselves. Why Bard and the Botanics? What does it mean to you? So first of all, we're going to hear contributions from two of our acting associate artists, by which I mean 
associate artists who are actors, they're not acting at being associate artists. Um, <laughs> the first of whom is Robert Elkin, and the second of whom is Stephanie McGregor. Both have been working with us for some time, Rob, uh, for more than 10 years now, and Steph uh, for just a little bit less than that. She first worked with us back in 2012. Both will have been seen by audiences on our stages in several roles. Rob's played Richard III and Richard II. He likes a King Richard. Uh, <laughs> that sounded vaguely... Vaguely dirty for yes. some reason. Let's move on. Uh, that's, yeah, I don't know what that was about. Uh, he's played... Yes, he's played the Richards. He's played uh, male version of Beatrice and Much Ado About Nothing. He's played Puck. Uh, he's did loads of stuff for us. Uh, Steph joined the company, first of all, to play Juliet in Romeo and Juliet, um, which she did for about three years on and off after that. <laughs> uh, and she's played Mephistopheles in uh, Faustus. She's played Rosalind in As You Like It, Ophelia in Hamlet. Um, they're two uh, of our very favourite actors. Um, and this is what they had to say about why Bard in the Botanics. For me, what sets Bard in the Botanics aside is how Gordon and Jenna uh, approach the plays they're directing. Um, you know, they never presume to know what the plays are about. In- instead, they challenge the cast and themselves to explore what the plays are capable of being about i suppose you know they they tear the plays to pieces until they've reached the very essence of what the play is and then plant that as a, a seed from which the uh, the the tree can grow it's a very apt analogy there for uh, for, <laughs> for bard in the botanics um but I think it's it's truthful to uh, to how they approach the plays. Uh, you don't come to a Bard and Botanic show or perform in a Bard and Botanic show just for the simple sake of telling a story. It's uh, it's an opportunity to to explore and to and to learn something about yourself or about humanity or um, the world. Uh, and I think how uh, Gordon and Jenna approach that is is uh, is with, with with bold choices. You know, they're not afraid to take risks. That's something that's that's always been at the heart of what Bard do. So what I like about Bard is that its motto is "Be bold, be brave," and it's not afraid to push boundaries within Shakespeare, I think there's a misconception that Shakespeare has to be done a certain way and needs to look a certain way. And I don't really feel that with Bard. I feel I can do anything and try anything and it will be welcomed. And I like that also with the Bard audience, they are so loyal and they come prepared for all weathers as we are in Scotland. Um, They know what to expect in the sense of being outside, bring a chair, all that kind of stuff. And they're just up for it. Um, and it's really nice to feel like the audience is on your side. Why I work with Bard is because they're like a family. They're like my family. Um, I walk into a rehearsal room with the Bard clan and I feel safe and wanted within the room. My opinions and my thoughts matter with, I think, and I think that's with every actor in the room, you know, you're not afraid to say things. That might not even make sense, but they'll go on you go. Give it a go. Um, and that's why I love working with Bard. So I'm going to start by picking up on something that Steph said, um, which was this phrase, be bold, be brave. 
And that is absolutely the motto of Bard and the Botanics. Um, if we're ever having uh, doubts about a creative decision, it will often come down to somebody in the room saying, come on, be bold, be brave. It's usually you. It it's you in fact, that phrase originated with you. This is, this is one of the things that Jen does so well as the associate director of the company. This <laughs> I love it. This episode is just a big loving of why we're amazing. Um, <laughs> because it's true. Uh, but you, you were the originator of that phrase. And I remember kind of the first time it was really used was um, planning for the 2013 season. And I'd had this idea in my head that uh, much ado about nothing. Uh, it, there would be an interesting version of it of Much Ado About Nothing with Benedict and Bertram instead of Benedict and Beatrice, a gay couple at the heart of uh, the story. Uh, and I was worried and I was nervous and I was thinking that, oh, maybe it's a little bit too much to try. I mean, it's kind of funny to look back now and think that we had those Especially since concerns. we've done much more risque things since. Yeah, well, it's not risque. It's not even risque, No, that. it's not risque it's not, to put a, a gay couple on stage. But no. the, um, And if anybody doesn't think Shakespeare's a queer writer, they really need to go back and read the plays <laughs> again. Yes. The, um, but, uh, but yeah, as a choice, it was it was concerning me whether that was too bold at that stage and that's that's where you you argued for be bold be brave um do what do what ignites your passion do what makes you makes you excited about the play follow an idea through because that will that will make something interesting yes. happen theatrically yeah this is something i absolutely believe in is that you that you fail if you make art to please someone else You've got you've got to make art that makes you excited, and then that excitement transfers to an audience. Uh, that's what I believe anyway, and I find that that's the art I think that most excites me when I can feel the passion of the artists involved. Yeah, um, I mean, I would much rather see something that took a big swing and missed for sure than something that just didn't do anything. Yes, um, and I kind that was of very safe. Yeah, safe safe doesn't work with theatre, and I don't think safe works with Shakespeare anymore. I think no. there's something we always say about our work, which is that if we are still doing these plays 400 odd years later, and we've already articulated the fact that we think the plays are brilliant, but there have been 400 years worth of playwrights since then. Uh, and Shakespeare gets done a lot. So why keep doing Shakespeare? And for us, if we're not finding something new to say about the play, something personal, something that comes from us as directors, they, uh, then it's just another production of Romeo and Juliet. It's just another production of Hamlet. And I don't know that the world needs that. The world needs another Hamlet if you've got something that you want to say with Hamlet. Yeah. Uh, the world will never not need another Hamlet if there's something that you want to say with it, if there's something that you want to engage an audience with about that play, but if you're doing it because it's Hamlet's turn... Then don't. No. <laughs> then don't. Just go away and find something else to do. Yeah, I think for us it's it's the difference between a, a kind of academic approach to Shakespeare and an approach which I think ours is, which is a practical approach, which is that these these are plays that were written to be performed. Um and I also think they are they are plays that stand interpretation. They are they are robust, um, solid pieces of work that really um take to interpretation really well. And I think especially take to bold interpretations really well. 
Yeah, and it, I'm not somebody who likes to think of Shakespeare as sacred. I think you have to approach his work with the understanding that he is a genius. I think the man who writes to be or not to be, to use an obvious example, the, the man who writes, uh, I love you with so much in my heart, there is none left to protest and much ado, or you know, just these, these moments, these scenes, these characters, the man who writes I is a genius, but he was a working playwright and the Elizabethan theatre was working fast. So there is problems with the structure of some of the plays. Some of the plays are not that good. Some of the plays have brilliant scenes and some utter dross. Some of the plays <laughs> have a brilliant core storyline, but the structure is all over the place. I don't think there's any problem with trying to then play with those plays and never never with an idea that I know better than Shakespeare. Just kind of looking at it from now and going, what works, what doesn't work? What might he have done with this story and these characters if he was writing now? Um, you know, I always think about the number of female characters that are in his plays. Um, and we have a grand history um, and hopefully an even better future of uh, of kind of gender parity in our, our work. And we'll talk about that in more detail in a future episode. Uh, but I don't think Shakespeare only wrote three, average three, maybe four women in his plays because he didn't want to write women's roles. He wrote them and he wrote them with less lines than the men because he had 14-year-old boys playing them and because the roles for women in society at that time were curtailed. You're not going to convince me that he wouldn't have many more of his roles and many a much wider breadth of roles written as women if he was writing now of course he would this is yeah this is something that's very important to us and something that we're actually going to devote at least a whole episode to we're going to come back to this idea of traditional versus non-traditional casting but it is all part of be bold be brave which is is kind of the bedrock of what we do is we we come back to it again and again and in fact uh, our next episode is going to focus very particularly on our approach to the scripts um so we'll come back to be bold be brave and talk about it yeah. in the future uh, i think what you were saying there though as well ties in with what rob was saying about what we're trying to do we're not trying to mess with shakespeare for the heck of it we're not trying to be anarchic about it we're trying to be respectful um, of the plays but we're trying to dig deep into them and get to the core of them uh, and then explore how best to relate what we really truly feel like the core of the the play is um you know and get rid of the jokes that don't work anymore because they're 400 years old oh god and some they, of them really don't they they really, really don't. don't they really <laughs> don't and yeah it's it's fascinating to know how that joke worked back then from an intellectual perspective. But how do you communicate that to an audience? Is something yeah. I, I, that's something I always have in my head, both as an actor and as a director, is you can have this wealth of scholarship so that you have all of the understanding in the world about a really archaic reference in the script. But 
the most important thing is to find out how to communicate the essence of that to an audience because they don't care about some Grecian reference that people in Shakespeare's time might have known really well but nobody today understands. So what is that Grecian reference about? What is What emotion is it alluding to? And how can we make that clear to the audience? Yeah. And I also want to say that this is not about dumbing down. Um, we like the term accessible, but we like that term in the best sense of that word, because we think that people understand Shakespeare. They don't need our help to understand Shakespeare. They they get it. Everybody has that thing, I think, when they're seeing a Shakespeare play, and even I do it, that maybe over the first five minutes or so, you're kind of tuning in. But if the performers are good, if the show is good, if everyone understands what they mean, then you get it. You understand it. Yeah, so there's I, no we're, need we're to not, dumb down. We're not fans of... We rarely change the language to yeah. go, oh, well, let's use a word that people understand there. Yeah. We don't need to do that. We will edit. We will edit like demons. We have been known to wield the scissors. The, uh, it well, true. it goes back to the, you know, the, the prologue of Romeo and Juliet says the two hours traffic of our stage. It's not two hours long. <laughs> no, performance styles have changed. If, we, if you did a full production of Romeo and Juliet, you'd be, you'd be lapping the two hours probably or getting close <laughs> to it. The, uh, and... And stage conventions that just don't work out. Right? Nobody enjoys the moment where the clown comes in in the middle of a tragedy because, you know, you need a scene with a clown. Nobody likes that scene. They are, And just because it was written and because it was part of the theatrical convention in the Elizabethan era, it doesn't mean we still have to have it. We're they so going to get letters now from all of the clown defenders out there. I bet, I bet you there's a clown defenders club. Well, this actually, and this is where I'll wrap up this section. This actually is a is a point that I want to make about all of this. There is no right way to do it. There's the way that we like to do it. Yeah, everything we're saying is about how we like to approach it. But that's not to say that our way is the only way or our way is the right way. There are many theatre companies across the breadth and length of this country uh, doing Shakespeare in different ways and across the world. And none of them are right. None of them are wrong. Everything has validity. Uh, this is just what we find exciting uh, as artists. So yeah, it's not about saying we find the key to Shakespeare. We find the key that gets us excited about it and works for our audiences. And uh, I think I just want to pick up that on that thing about audiences because that was something that Steph said she loved about the company and it is something that I really love is that is the way that the audience engages with our work and that stretches right from everyone remembers to bring an anorak because it may rain. Um, although less than you might think. So all the way from coming prepared for the weather, coming prepared with a lovely picnic, coming prepared with a camping chair. Um, they, coming prepared with extra picnic because they know someone from the show is going to steal going a to little bit of that picnic at some point bit. during the show. Uh, yep, yeah, I, uh, I might have even done that myself on occasion. So they, they engage in all of the, the kind of practical ways, but they also really engage with the art. They engage with the stories. They engage with the themes. Um, they engage with our choices. They, they, they really embrace the fact that we aren't, all, we aren't a conventional theatre company. We aren't a conventional Shakespeare company. And we're certainly not a conventional outdoor Shakespeare company. Um, you know, I don't think we've had an Elizabethan bodice on the stage for nearly 10 years now. Um, but our audiences have really embraced that. Um, and they're as excited to find out what 
twist or shift they're going to see in the story as they are about the chance to see a, a classic story told. So why Barden the Botanics? I think first and foremost, it gives the audiences an authentic experience of the plays. Yes, they were originally written for the globe, but they also toured for many centuries and still do, obviously. And I feel like the Botanic Gardens themselves offer the audience a perspective into that. It's a different window into the plays, and I think it's really valuable. You know, to be at the end of a, to be watching a drama and to be at the end as the darkness descends certainly adds to the tragedy of it and perhaps is more profound than even a modern theatre setting can offer. Uh, So it's special in that context for me. Uh, The work itself, I think, amplifies the themes of Shakespeare's text and reflects back uh, to our society. You know, these plays still mean something to us today. Uh, At Bard, the bold interpretations allow people to extract their own meanings on human nature, on society, where we've been, where we're going. Um, And I think it's it's great to be part of a company that that want to do that, that strive to do that. The company itself are, are, are really dedicated, really kind people. Gordon uh, always picks um, really nice people, I think, to be part of the company. And um, everybody works tirelessly really across the season to put on these plays and, and, and enjoy doing so. Uh, it's a great working environment and that's why people keep coming back and audiences keep coming back because I think they can tell that we really care. The things that I love about working for Bard, um, and actually, yeah, I've said things because it's there's no way you can just have one thing. Um, it would be the people, first of all. Um, we are a, a beautiful, dysfunctional family. Uh, and I think we're incredibly close because of the shared experiences that we've had as a company, the situations that we found ourselves in, the circumstances in which we have to create the work and the, the sort of outside things that we have to deal with on a daily basis of being outdoors and working and the weather and all sorts of things. Um, yeah, I think we all muck in and pull together in a way that you don't necessarily have to do in, in, a, in a conventional theatre. The material would be my second thing. I I love the language. I love working with Shakespeare. And after, what, 11 and a bit seasons, uh, I, I, I still am utterly awestruck when I come across the writing um, and when I'm, I'm able to, to kind of delve into a character and, and find all the clues that are in that writing. Um, he he he's genius it's genius writing and it's such a gift for an actor to be given those words so yeah the material is definitely up there um and finally for me it would be the actual location itself um the gardens are a really beautiful place to work but it's actually the the spaces that we pr- produce the shows in the kibble palace and the outside stage on the main lawn um it just mean that we have this really unique relationship with the audience where we can see them and you can walk in and amongst them if you're on the outdoor st- show um, and it's just a real challenge for an actor to embrace that relationship, um, but still stay in control of it. I mean, maybe panto is the only other time where you actively interact with the audience and you have to use the skills that you have as an actor to kind of engage with them, but bring it back into focus when you need the story to carry on. Um and yeah, there, there's a similar relationship, I think, with our bard audiences. Um, we're able to to get up close and personal with them and 
I love, I love making those connections, especially in the kibble shows, because it's even more intimate because they're even closer to you in those places. So there we heard from two more of our associate artists, uh, another two of our core actors, uh, Adam Donaldson, first of all, uh, who you may have seen in recent years on our stages as Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing, Malvolio in Twelfth Night, uh, the title role in Faustus, and... The title role in Henry V? Oh, yes, indeed. And, uh... <laughs> I can't help but call her Dame Nicole Cooper. <laughs> um, she's not a dame, but we firmly believe she should be and will be at some point. Nicole uh, is definitely a, a familiar face to Bard audiences. Uh, most recently, last year, as Hamlet. In fact, she's kind of the the queen of the cross-gendered roles. She's played Hamlet, Timon of Athens, Coriolanus, um, alongside a host of the the female leads as well. Viola, Rosalind, Beatrice. The, uh, so two very familiar uh, faces to our Bard audiences, two phenomenal actors. Um, and both, both talking there about the unique experience of working at Bard in the Botanics and the unique experience of rehearsing and performing outdoors. Um, and that's what I thought would be interesting to kind of pick up on from what they were saying. Um, now, Jen, you've, you have performed. You have performed have. many a time at Bard in the Botanics. <laughs> Not for a few years now. I think it's maybe three or four years since you were last on the Bard I, stage. I, outdoors. I was in the kibble last summer. Yes. In uh, your own play, uh, written by you and Rob Elkin, Heavenly Touches. A uh, piece of new writing that we premiered last year. Um, and you took over from Nicole as Beatrice on tour a couple of years ago. I did. But... Being outside in the garden, it's been a few years since you were last on our stage. Too long, too long. And we shall remedy that before too long. <laughs> but Adam and Nick are right, aren't they? There is something very special and very unique about uh, being outside in, in the Botanic Gardens and the relationship that you have with the audience. Yes, it's a very special relationship that you have with an audience outdoors. Um, as I've said before, you can see them and they can see you. And there is an acknowledgement of that, that we, um, I always say, we're, we invite the audience to play the game with us. Um, come on the journey, experience the story with us. Um, and especially in Shakespeare, when so much of Shakespeare is designed to be direct address, you, you speak directly to the audience. There's no fourth wall. Um, there is no, we're in our very small kitchen sink drama. Um, we're sharing this story with you and it's something that I, I'm always having to impress on new members of the company maybe who haven't worked outdoors before is this need to really invite the audience in um, part of which is to do with just making sure that you are loud enough so yeah. that your unamplified voice because we don't use voice amplification at Bard um, so that your unamplified voice can reach the 350th person who is sitting right up the back lawn. We always kind of describe it as you've got to use your voice as a hook, do you? you yes. know, when you, As you say, when, when actors who are going out onto that stage with an audience for the very first time onto our outdoor stage, we always tell them, you know, clock where the furthest away person is, spot with that person, use your, get your voice out to them and hook them into you. Because you have to, you have to actively engage an outdoors audience. There are a million and one distractions outdoors. Glasgow Botanic Gardens is right next to Great Western Road in Glasgow, which is one of the main arteries through the city. There are helicopters overhead. There are 
squirrels running through the performance space. There are <laughs> always, always ambulances and fire engines. And yeah. this is, so there's this saying in Glasgow, which is, I believe, Partick's burning, Mary Hill's bleeding, right? And this is because the Botanic Gardens are situated kind of right bang in the middle of two areas of Glasgow called Partick and Mary Hill. And the fire station is in Mary Hill and the hospital is in Partick. So you basically have fire engines and ambulances going past the Botanic Gardens to attend to whatever um, emergency. And and you just kind of have to make that part of what you're doing. Um, you can Sometimes you can acknowledge it. That can be really fun, especially if you're doing a comedy to acknowledge the helicopter that's been doing the rounds over the Botanics the, for the past half hour. This all goes back into the idea of the a performance at Bard in the Botanics is the performance doesn't just happen on the stage, it happens in the interplay with the audience, much more so than a traditional theatre space where the lights are down. And it's because every, we are all sharing the same experience and the audience are aware of that. If it's a chilly night, the audience are cold and they're aware that the actors are cold. If it's full of midges, as Scotland uh, <laughs> often is, the actors are getting eaten alive and the audience, and nobody can ignore the circumstances around you. No one can ignore the helicopter hovering overhead. And it's kind of odd if you do. They, uh, so you have to share that experience between the stage and the audience. He says not being an actor. but um... It does lead to some really fun things you can do, though. What you'll discover uh, if you spend a lot of time working on Shakespeare is that it's full of weather references. And you, there's always a good laugh to be had out of a reference either to how sunny it is or how rainy it is. I remember... That will always make the audience laugh. I remember a few years ago, uh, you directed Twelfth Night, and for some reason, there were so many nights during the run where the scene where Malvolio was trapped in the dark house and Feste visits him pretending to be the priest, it would downpour right in that scene. Uh, the number of times poor Steph and Adam came off stage completely soaked from that scene. But often... Again, so many times, it would be a passing heavy shower. And the next person on stage was Sebastian, the character Sebastian. And I think one of the very first lines he had to say in that scene was, this is the air, that is the sun. The, uh, and of course, every single one of the times, there was nothing resembling a sun up there. And the, uh, Sam McLaughlin, who was playing Sebastian, could get, you could easily get a round of applause every night with that. Gales line. of laughter followed by applause. Um, and that is part of that game that we're talking about that, um, that again, I think goes back to the thing I was saying earlier about it being democratic. And by that, I mean that it's very much a shared experience. It's not, look at us up here acting so hard um, and you just sit there and be quiet. It's come with us on the journey. Come with us whilst we discover this story together. I think that's interesting because I think there's there's sometimes a misconception about outdoor theatre and this connection with the audience that it is all about nods and winks and stealing the picnics and that's all part of it if it's appropriate for the play. What's what's really interesting is when we do the more serious plays or when we do the serious touching moments within the comedies, trying to find trying to make sure that that truth remains and that the truth remains b between the actors and the characters on stage. It's not all throwing out to to the audience with a big nod and a wink there there has to be true otherwise otherwise it it doesn't it doesn't make you feel anything it doesn't engage it's just it's just silliness the um and a bit of silliness 
let it never be said that I am averse to a bit of silliness, as anyone who saw Comedy of Errors uh, several <laughs> years ago will know, or indeed pretty much any of my shows. But yeah, the, the, it's this balance of getting and how do you when it's when it's an incredibly intensely emotional scene. I, I'm thinking of the last production I directed outdoors was Hamlet. And when you really want to invest in those relationships, but you can't ignore the audience. And that that's what the actors who work with us regularly and, and the associate artists particularly are so good at uh, is making sure that what's happening on stage is truthful and alive and in the moment, but not at the expense of keeping the audience engaged. And it's it's a little bit of alchemy. It's It's something very special to watch. And I think coming back to the material again, I think that's inherent in Shakespeare's writing. I would always argue, looking at a play like Romeo and Juliet, I think there's a misconception about Romeo and Juliet as the as a tragedy, just a tragedy. But I would argue that the first half of Romeo and Juliet is absolutely a romantic comedy. Oh yeah, up until it's a comedy that goes wrong. It's a comedy that goes wrong. The first bit is hilarious, and what I loved the last time I directed it was feeling the audience just howling with laughter. It's, we had a very um, comic creation as a male version of the nurse who was absolutely brilliant. Um, and the, I think there's so much humour in the balcony scene. And then to have it flip and have the same audience who had been howling with laughter, then then be crying, then be really feeling the tragedy of these these young lovers thwarted. And I think that's inherent in a lot of Shakespeare's plays. That kind of goes back to something that uh, Adam was saying which is about the when you're outdoors the, with the natural environment again and that darkening as the evening goes on and it it takes on a different mood that that watching the summer night turn into well summer evening turn into night can take on it with something like Romeo and Juliet watching that mood darken as the the play moved from comedy through to tragedy that's something you know the best lighting designer in the world can't give you that same feeling or in something like as you like it which i directed last year um as it moved towards just this really gorgeous heartwarming communal ending with the beautiful uh summer glass scottish night sky the uh and fairy lights everywhere you know that again it's when you realize the genius again linking up to what nick said the uh, linking up to the genius of the writing you know he, he knew what he was doing writing those plays for those spaces and what would happen to the environment around you uh, and you get that even though i have to be historically accurate a lot of his plays were done during the day at the globe so perhaps it's more of a happy accident but it's certainly one of the most special things is sitting on that summer's evening watching the, the world around you get darker and everything pulled down to what's happening on that little stage that we have. Why Bard in the Botanics? Um, I guess I could split that into two things. If I'm talking about for an audience member, why an audience member would like to go to Bard in the Botanics. It really is a unique experience just to sit outside in a beautiful setting and watch a play. And on a lovely evening, there is nothing better And also Gordon and Jen are just really good at creating a unique and different perspective on plays that have been produced for a long time. You'll always see something new in a Bard performance. And our core company are just phenomenal actors. But why Bard and the Botanics for me? I have to say, for something that started out as just a gig, just a job to do, 
it's eight, nine years later and Bard is, is like a family. Some of my best friends are, are people I've met through Bard and I love them all dearly and miss them during lockdown. What Bard means to me, impossible to encapsulate in 30 seconds, but it is friendship, it's hard work, it's my annual challenge to tick another one off the list. That was still my ambition. My professional ambition is to tick all of them off. Um, it's problem solving on a minute by minute basis. It's thinking laterally all the time to try and get the best results um, as a non-funded company and what we can achieve. It's pride at the quality of our productions. It's happiness and the silliness of our work environment and how amazing and stressful and wonderful it can be and it's my favorite thing it's the one I love to come back to every year and I can't wait to be back next year so there was another two of our associate artists uh both of whom uh come from our behind the scenes team uh first of all Susie Goldberg who is our stage manager and uh Karis Hobbs who is our head of design both have worked with us for uh, more than a decade now uh, and are so phenomenal at what they do uh, that they make what is a very difficult job staging four productions every summer with no uh, subsidy and no uh, no funded support. They make it seem incredibly easy. Uh, but as Kara says... Uh, and this is something we want to pick up on, first of all. Uh, it is hard work. It's really hard work. Uh, I think there's there's maybe, there, there are things I think that the audience doesn't know and they don't need to know. And um, I'm always a bit like, what does it matter if it's hard work for anyone else? It matters for us and we get exhausted. But um, I have this thing, if anyone has seen that movie, The Revenant, there was all this stuff when that movie came out about how hard it was to film. It was so cold and they were miserable. And as an audience member, I'm always like, I don't care. I don't. <laughs> is the film any good? Um, also, you know, with Hollywood actors, you're a bit like, oh, you poor, sad multimillionaire. Yes. yes. Um, but you, uh, the same cannot be said for us. None of us are multimillionaires. <laughs> no, if um, only, if only. But I think it might be interesting for the audience to hear um, kind of about the process. Um, I think the hardest period in a Bard in the Botanic season is what we call the middle four. We used to call it the middle three, but then we realised it wasn't actually the middle three. It was the middle four, which is basically the period when we move from just rehearsing one show each. Um, so we'll be rehearsing the outdoor show and the kibble show at the same time and we move before those shows open we have to start rehearsing the second shows in the season and that starts in week four of our nine week season and so for the next four weeks what is happening is that we are opening and then running the first two shows in the season while rehearsing and prepping the second two shows so basically everybody is doing 12 to 13 hour days, five, Easily. Yeah. five Easily. to six days a week. We try and make it five days a week yeah. where we possibly can. But there are a couple of weeks where it's just not possible, especially for the production staff who have to turn around the shows. Um, and everybody just basically lives in the Botanic Gardens. You, you, you see your bed 
and you see the botanics. And, and that is you it. might see the pub across the road. I, I don't know what you're Once about. or twice during I, that. I rarely um, Work hard to play hard is... <laughs> The uh, it's not a motto. It's just it's just how it happens. It's just what we do. The um, although less so uh, than perhaps twenty years ago. <laughs> I think there was more of the playing hard twenty years ago than there is now. But yeah, it, that middle period, and so each of the actors has two shows going in their head at all times, and all of the production team. Uh, so Susie and Sam Ramsey, who's our festival manager, and Karis and her wardrobe staff. They tend to have about they tend to have all four shows kind of juggling through their heads at the same time, whether it's finishing off uh one show to get it up or maintaining what's going on in that, Sam working out when she can start to get the stage turned around for the, the next shows. They uh, there's just so much work going on in that middle period. It is Nick said it earlier, uh, both Karis and Sue's kind of said it there. It's so important that we are all working as one team the in order to do that. Because if we didn't like each other, it would be hell on earth. It would be unbearable. And we're very lucky that everyone, I think, on the team not only um, likes each other very much, but are very passionate about what we do. Everyone is invested. I don't think there's anyone really on the team who for whom it's just another job and and that's true for all of us i think i can i can safely say that for all of the associate artists is that bard in the botanics is not just another job it is a passion project it is something that we believe in desperately and that is the thing that gets you through the four weeks of 12 to 13 hour days when you think, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to get the lines down for the next show. Or as a director, I'm going, oh my God, I've got three weeks to get a full scale Shakespeare and play on its feet. We're never going to be ready in time for the first preview. This is where, what, picking up on what Kara said, this is where the silliness comes in. Like the, the fun of it, we hopefully managed to, there are always days when we don't manage to bring the fun. But in the days when you're tired, in the days when you're stressed, we'll stick on moves like Jagger in the office and bounce around like Egypts. We will always reach that day where Susie is verging on hysteria through tiredness and work. And you can either be nice to her or stick the llama song on and she will break. She will and break. she will be in hysterical laughter if for about don't an hour. If you know the llama song, I urge you to head to YouTube and just type in Llama Song Original and just have a watch. And it's it's kind of a way to gauge your sense of humour. I, I think I'll say <laughs> no more. I think I'm just going to let you go and experience the Llama Song if you haven't already done so. So all of this is kind of moving towards something both Karis and Sue said about how, and indeed quite a lot of the other associate artists over the, the episode, talking about Bard as a family. Nicole earlier um, said we are a crazy dysfunctional family, I think, um, which is fair to say, but what family isn't? But we really are. Uh, you know, we we are each other's friends. We are each other's social life out with the season. Not entirely. I hope we all have our own lives as well. But we are there for each other. We are a family. I think this is something that is true in the best of theatre companies and and not just Bard. I think it is very special in Bard. Um, we're bound together by this 
common love for each other and for the work. But there is also, I think, something to be said for that family feeling in the best of theatre companies in general. Yeah. And it's partly because you all turn up on the first day and immediately you are plunged into doing something that requires an incredible level of intimacy and trust. You might be sharing things that are very personal. You might be physically sharing a space that is very personal um, and you have to trust each other. Uh, the directors have to trust that the actors are going to go for it. The actors are going to have to trust that the director has their back and is not going to let them look foolish in the wrong kind of way. The actors have to trust each other that they're going to be there. Um, if someone gets in trouble, they're going to help out. There are all sorts of things in this industry that require this incredible level of intimacy and trust. And I think in the best of theatre companies, that really lends itself to that feeling of family that is so special. It's interesting. I was listening to actually another podcast recently, um, and in, which had an interview with um, Kevin Clifton, who uh, was one of the dancers in Strictly Come Dancing, um, and is making the move into musical theatre uh, and into live performance. And he was talking about one of the things coming from his first background of competitive ballroom dancing, moving into the world of theatre. Uh, one of the things he absolutely loved about it was this sense that everyone is there to make each other look better not to beat each other but to support each other and to go how how do we work together to make the best of this um, and I think that's the feeling that you're kind of describing it's not in the best of theatre companies and with the best of people which I think Barton the Botanics has well, I know Barton the Botanics has it is about how do we do the best together and I think that this this feeling of family is what makes the work good. Um, I just to come back to that, you know, thing about the revenant, like why do we care that you guys are a family? I think because it makes the work better. I think most theatre goers will remember seeing a production where something just wasn't quite right. Maybe there was a character who didn't seem to fit in the universe or, you know, it didn't kind of hang together as a whole. And I think if you as a theatre company are working as a family, what you're working on is creating a shared understanding of a universe, the universe of the play that you are creating. And if everyone involved in that production is working in the same universe, then you will create a coherent piece of drama that an audience will be able to get on board with. So I think that's why it's important for the work that you, you endeavour to create a family atmosphere in your, in your theatre company. Yeah, I don't want to speak for other theatre companies, but I think there is something almost even more intense about that family feeling at Barden Botanics because of what a lot of people have already said over the course of the episode, and we've talked about it as well. There, It's that shared experience. It's that slight unpredictability about outdoor theatre. You've got to be alive. You've got to be there. You don't know what's going to happen with the weather at any moment. You're rehearsing outdoors or you're rehearsing in a public park at all times. There's there's a kind of throw you in at the deep end that bonds people together. I mean, I always love the fact that we've been talking about the, the middle four, the four weeks in the middle of the season where the hour, the work hours are crazy. The, uh, the, the amount of work that everyone has to do is piling up. And we still take one Sunday every year of that. And we all go to 
Nicole Cooper's house and have a massive barbecue with her family. The uh, the whole company will turn up for that um, and often stay far too late uh, for uh, people that have to work the next day. Yeah, I think there's something really to be said for a group of people who are spending every waking moment together that those people still want to spend their day off together, yeah. having a great time and celebrating this experience that they're sharing. It, it really is a really special, special thing. You're right. It is an absolutely special company and a special experience. Um, and I'm going to hand over to the last of our associate artists, Alan Steele, to share his thoughts on exactly why it is so special. I've loved working as an actor for Bad in the Botanics and I've loved being part of the audience too, sharing wonderful stories, the best stories in the world with a company that creates magic, often against the odds, with slim resources, but a lot of love, a lot of originality, a real sense of inclusion and diversity and a loyalty to their cast, their creatives, and most of all the audience. This year I'm going to miss walking through that beautiful park on a summer night and seeing that little square of light at the end of the path that is the stage and then joining people who have made you part of their family to say some of the best words ever written and share some of the best ideas ever thought. Yes, it is magic, but, but now more than ever, it's really badly needed. This is a difficult time for theatres and theatre companies around the world, and Barton the Botanics is no exception. We are working incredibly hard to ensure that we will be returning in 2021 for the company's 20th anniversary season. But if you'd like to support us and help us make sure that we can be there, please visit our website at www.bardenthebotanics.co.uk and donate to our crowdfunder fundraising campaign that will ensure the survival of Arden Botanics for years to come. You can also find us on social media. So have a look for us there. We are on Facebook, we are on Instagram, and we're on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe. We'd like to say a big thank you to all of the associate artists for their wonderful contribution. Lend Us Your Ears is a Bard in the Botanics production. It is produced by Gordon Barr and Jennifer Dick with production support from Sam Ramsey and it is edited by Jennifer Dick. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs> Outtakes. And if you've enjoyed this. <laughs> <laughs> it's going very well. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, here we go. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Once more. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast to hear. There's no need for anything more than that. <laughs> there really isn't. <laughs>